Matthew chapter 28. Lord, as we look into this portion and as we look into other texts in Matthew, may you help us to see the gracious gift that you've given to us in the church, your, your body, your uh, representation of authority on earth. And I pray, Father, that we would be um, encouraged by what we see, that there is an active a movement of your purpose in this world. Uh, we're not in limbo just waiting for you to return, and, and we do want you to return, but there's so much that you're wanting us to accomplish in this lifetime for your sake and your glory. So I pray, Father, that we would see the beauties that are inherent in these, these words and instructions, and we ask this in your name. Amen. So, as we get ready to read Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, I want to ask you a couple of questions before we read it. What do you think of when you think of the word authority? Maybe if you have a military background, uh, what comes to mind is the, uh, the chain of command and, and ranks of authority and responsibility. Maybe if you're a parent, you're probably thinking about your role to your children. Uh, you have to instruct them in the way that they ought to go, and so you have authority given to you for that purpose. If you're a teenager and you hear the word authority, you might be thinking of, I can't wait to the day I have my own freedom, my own authority. And maybe if you're a spouse... Maybe depending on your experience with authority, it might be a fearful kind of word because of some of the authority that you've seen in the past. If you're an observer of politics, you might wonder which branch of government has the ultimate authority. If you're in possession of a traffic ticket, you might better understand who has the authority. Now, if I were to ask you here this morning where authority rests in a local church, how would you answer that? Did you know that the church has been given the right to exercise in specific ways for the sake of Christ's people? In fact, the church is delegated by God to bring about a people who were created for good works. It's very common for organizations to have what's called missional drift. They start out with one set of purposes, and then all these little good ideas come along, and then all of a sudden we're off, off the moorings of where we were supposed to be going. And so this morning as we think uh, about authority and what's been placed into the church by Christ... We're going to be looking at three passages which speak of levels of authority and how God has given the local church these practical tools to bring about a people for good works. That's what we're doing here this morning. 
And so you're all there in Matthew already, and we're going to see how, here how authority ultimately comes from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So let's read verse uh, 16, actually, of chapter 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, this passage that I just read is sometimes called the Great Commission, the church's commission to go into all the world and to make disciples, teaching them. Now, in this, sometimes we overlook the fact that Jesus is extending to the disciples some inherent authority on the basis of his own personal resurrection. This comes in the message of the gospel itself. I mean, you know that when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and when we do this in, in, as we go about in life, what we are doing is we are proclaiming the light of God's glory to the world. His absolute authority over all things that he has created. And so when we preach the gospel, what we are doing is we're saying that Christ has the authority to rule in this world as he sees fit. And this being the case, that we are sent for this purpose, the church has been empowered by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what's communicated in verse 18. All authority has been given to him. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's seating at the, the right hand of the Father. He's seated, as the book of Ephesians says, in heavenly places. All of these images of sitting with power and authority actually come from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 speaks of Jesus coming into the courtroom of God and being handed a kingdom with all authority. And Jesus is explaining that this authority has now been given to him on the basis of his resurrection. If you're thinking about the study that we've been doing in Ephesians, Ephesians 1 actually has some very powerful images of this authority that's by virtue of the resurrection. In fact, the authority is described in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, that the Father has put all things under his feet. That's a reference to the Old Testament. Actually, it's taken from one of the Psalms of David. You see a strange picture on the wall. That's actually the kind of image and metaphor that people in the Old Testament would have associated with having all things underneath their feet. All their enemies are actually being crushed as a footstool. This is the kind of authority that Christ has, that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. He sits in the heavens and his feet rest upon his enemies. And he directs the world as he sees fit. And actually, this is intended to be incredibly comforting to the church. You know, if you're here this morning 
You need to see. You need to see and take courage in the fact that, that whatever God is king through ruling with Christ, whatever he allows is ultimately designed for his glory and our good. There's nothing that escapes the life of a congregation that isn't ultimately for its good. And we need to see that. It may bring us to a more humble place, but in doing so, it will draw our hearts to Christ, which is infinitely better. Christ is head over all things, which, which means that his head, he is like, the church is like the body of Christ as a metaphor. He fills all in all. And so we as people, we have, as we've said before, a foot in two worlds. We are saints immediately right now before the throne of God, but we are also sojourners here waiting for the fullness to be unveiled. What's reality will then be seen. And so we need to see that all of this authority is being delegated on the basis of the resurrection of Christ. And now in verses 19 to 20, what we see here is that Christ delegates the making of disciples to the church. We see the word baptism, baptizing them in the triune name of God. And the ordinance of baptism is a local church ordinance. It's designed to be done within the context of the fellowship of the congregation. And when a person is baptized, it's expected that they integrate into the body for the purpose of being discipled. That's, that's all interrelated. Baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is an illustration that, that, that when you are immersed into a relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who have a fellowship together, you are entering into a, a, a fellowship with other believers, and this is for our good. It's for our good. And I think it's helpful for us to realize that we don't bring people into the membership of this congregation without a viable profession of faith and a baptism. When you see someone presented for membership, they come forward and they have been already heard. They're, the elders and the deacons hear their verbal testimony of following Christ. And so... Every person we present to you has, has been already immersed in the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so bringing into the church sets up a relationship of commitment for the purpose of discipling. Now, we use the word discipling very loose sometimes, and we maybe don't even understand what does that even look like. What does that mean? Well, it simply means this, that we do good for others spiritually. We want them to grow in their relationship with God through the Holy Spirit so that the, the, the fruit of the Spirit blossoms in their life. That's what we want in relationship with those we disciple as a body. Really helpful for us to see this. Notice also in these verses, um, in the baptizing them is the first Description, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So there is aspects of 
becoming more acquainted with, more knowledge of understanding what it's like to, to live with God. This is a part of the discipling process. Uh, a friend of mine just this week on the phone, um, a pastor um, not too far away, uh, asked me how we measure, or how I personally measure spiritual growth. And as I reflected on that question, immediately what came to my mind was whether or not a person, like we would know if they're, they're really growing is if they can articulate clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ that saved them. I would also see that they're growing in their knowledge of the word, hunger for the word, and then thirdly, and as important, there's time-tested demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit. Those three benchmarks, if you will, are the really foundational in this text. Teaching uh, you whatever I have commanded you. What did Jesus tell the disciples in, in the upper room? I give you a new commandment that you would love one another. That is the Holy Spirit. That is the fruit of the Spirit on display. And so I see in this, these, these verses all of those three points inherent. And we don't want people to be taken by every wind of doctrine. We want people to be mature. They, we, we want people to be filled with grace and love. We want people to appreciate the, the message and the meaning of the Word of God, but we also want them to live out the fruit of the Spirit. So how does this play itself out? With the authority that God has given to the church for this purpose of growing and making disciples. There are two other texts that we're going to turn to in a moment to show us that Christ has actually laid some of these principles out for us. But before we turn there, by way of transition, I want us to think about something that one theologian, Wayne Grudem, has said regarding the authority of the church. He, he described it this way. He said, The power of the church is its God-given authority to proclaim the gospel and exercise church discipline. Now that, on the surface, may seem strange. Really? Are these the, the things that the church has authority to do? I might agree with point number one, but point number two? How does that really help create and do spiritual good for people? And so this morning, we're going to look at Matthew 16 and 18 and see where Jesus instructs the disciples on this delegated authority. And these two texts are related to one another. Let's go to first, uh, chapter 16 to start. Matthew chapter 16. Verse 13 through 20 is this little text. And I'd like you just, we're going to read it in full in a moment, but I want you to see one verse before we get into it, and that's in verse 19. In verse 19, Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That little phrase about binding and loosing is connected between this text and what we're going to read in Matthew 18. Word for word connected. What does this mean? That something bound on earth is, shall be bound in heaven. 
very literally, to quote my, one of my boys, literally, it means that whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. When the church follows through on a unified decision, that which has been bound in heaven will be revealed to be bound here on earth. There is a, there is a foot in two places. And so, as Jesus unfolds this mystery, we ought to pay attention. In fact, um, again, this fits the whole theme of what we're seeing in the book of Ephesians, that we have a foot in two different places. And so here, authority is being on display to admit, actually, people into the church. In Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20, Jesus is teaching that there is inherent authority to, to bring people into the church. Verse 20. Uh, let's read this verse. Actually, let me go ahead and read the whole thing first, and then we'll... So you can see, verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but what do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Actually, this was in the song that we sang this morning, wasn't it? Show us Christ. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Why would he tell them not to, to let it out of the, the cat out of the bag? Why would he do that? Because in time, Peter will have the privilege of letting the cat out of the bag. Now is not the time. One day, in a future point, when Pentecost occurs, Peter is going to have the privilege to stand and open up the gates of the church to the world. He's going to open up with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the, the door is opening, and the light is shining, and people will begin to respond and enter into the kingdom of God. So it says here in these verses, Peter is the rock upon which this church is built. But what is under Peter? What is under Peter if Peter is a rock? It's the bedrock of Christ, the confession that he made. Jesus is the one who builds his church through the preaching of Peter. Peter had the privilege of, of first declaration of the resurrection of Christ in this way. And all the disciples have that opportunity. And by extension, I believe it's fair to say that we, as Christians and followers of Jesus Christ, do this when we open our mouths and we share the gospel, the open door, and the light goes out into the world. We have a sacred trust as gospel bearers. 
in our scripture reading this morning, which Chris read, Paul said that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. It means we, we, have, we have the sacred trust to guard and care for the gospel and not water it down, not distort it, because it is a potent, life-changing force. It is a message of intense, of intense glory. And we need to be so uh, assured of its power that we take care of it and we proclaim it. And so the authority to admit people into the church is inherent in the gospel presentation. But then in Matthew 16 verse 19, he describes this as authority. You see in verse 19, he says that there are keys to the kingdom of heaven. Do you see that? Keys. And this is given. This phrase, keys of the kingdom, is, uh, is a very significant phrase. It actually only occurs here in the scriptures. But the metaphor of keys is a very common use in the scriptures. Um, in the ancient world, cities were not open borders, if you will. There was a wall that surrounded the city. And there was a, a gatekeeper. And the gatekeeper had authority because he had the key to open and allow commerce to pass through those gate walls. I uh, had to chuckle, and I apologize. I hope this doesn't sound irreverent, but... Uh, um, our family, not long ago, rewatched The Princess Bride. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, Prince Humperdinck says to the gatekeeper, how are you going to make sure that they don't get in? He says, I'm the only gatekeeper, and I have the only key. Well, they highly intimidated him, and they got the key, and they opened the gate. And so, here, this is the image. The gatekeeper is the church who guards the gospel, which is a precious thing, but it's to be shared and taken to the, the world. But there's something else here that needs to be understood, is that the church has at least authority to evaluate a profession of faith. Whether or not the profession... Measures with the quality of the gospel. Whether or not to baptize an individual upon the basis of their verbal profession. This is what's being bound in, in heaven will be bound on earth. The church has been given this authority by Christ himself. Now the word keys implies that there's more than one key of authority. And it suggests that there is possibly another door. In other words, simple entry into the church is not all that's implied. There is implied authority that once you're in the church, there is authority there for your good. In fact, uh, as we move now, we're going to have to move to Matthew chapter 18. And let's move there and see that in Matthew 18, there is authority 
in whatever situations and relationships in the body, the church has a certain amount of authority to, to encourage movement toward good, good works. Let's read verses um, 15 uh, through 20. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three on earth agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. Now that you see that last verse in context, which is often quoted, doesn't it change the essence and sense of like where two or three are gathered together? And he's saying that there is authority here in the church to care and to help facilitate reconciliation. This is a part of their duty and responsibility. Now in verse eight, verse um, 18, I want you to see the word whatever, whatever you bind and whatever you loose is sometimes translated whatsoever. I don't know what translation you have in your lap, but that is a generic word that is, refers to general situations and relationships. Whatever, whatever comes about. This is where the authority of the church rests. And it's for this purpose. Now, I know that when we think of the word discipline, it often carries with it a negative connotation. And that might be true, and that's what we would call corrective discipline. But there is also, and really even in the correction, there is also a positive, hopeful outcome. But there is also another form of discipline that we sometimes forget, and that is formative discipline. I know I look different. I, I, I know I actually don't enjoy formative discipline, especially the thought of going to a gym and working out just frankly scares the living daylights out of me. Sorry. I know some of you guys love lifting the weights and doing all that stuff. But that's formative discipline, isn't it? You're trying to create positive change and good inside of you. Now, when the word of God is preached, that's formative discipline. We need to hear the words of God and say, I need this. It may not be what I want to hear, but all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We need the formative work of the word on our hearts and lives. But there are times when the word of God must be used correctively. And this use of God's word is actually, it's given to the church. Church discipline is a subject that needs discipline itself. It's not to be used willy-nilly. It's, it's, it has a process. It has a flow. 
And as you read through the verses, you see one and then two and then three, and you see that then the church is involved. And so there's a process. There's a discipline here. And so it's important for us to realize that there are times when in the formative effort to teach the word and cause the heart to change, that there will be some hearts that will stiffen up, get hard, and refuse to change. And when that occurs, it is the good of the word to remove them from the body. And it is good for the body that they be removed. The potential is that they might return and might respond at that point. Now, it's important for us to realize that there are goals in this process. The goal of discipline is restoration and reconciliation of a believer who is on their way. They're going astray. But we do need to acknowledge that there are some hearts that won't change, and in fact, they become stone. In fact, they probably were already stone to begin with, and it's just a revealing of where things actually are. And so in the process of doing this, you actually reveal where the true church rests. That's a part of the authority. It's part of the good that God wants to have done through the church. It doesn't help anyone to not know who is the church and who is not the church. If we're unclear as to who is a believer and who is not a believer, it's not good for any of us. And so the goal of discipline is to restore, but it's also to define and to keep sin from spreading. When a root of bitterness is allowed to grow for... A decade, maybe 20 years, what happens? What does the book of Hebrews say? Many are defiled. It's not good. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so the purpose of all of this authority is actually to, to disciple, to do good for a flock so that they might be healthy and thrive and, and expand and grow for the glory of God. And so what this process does is it protects the purity of the church and the honor of Christ. It should be very clear that no believer will be perfect. That's not the goal of any kind of discipline. Every true believer, though, will be fighting sin. We're sojourners and we're saints. We don't want the church to be like the kind of church that's found in the book of Revelation where Christ has to look at them and say, but I have this against you. We want to give glory to God by devoting ourselves to good works and not the works of the flesh. That's what we're looking for. I mentioned earlier a conversation that I had with a pastor friend and um, the same call, he was uh, telling how he's a part of a network of churches. And uh, in this network, um, they, they, they consult with other churches of varying sizes. And uh, he was asked to listen to um, a preaching of a pastor at a very large church. I wouldn't call it a mega church necessarily. And uh, he said he was shocked, actually, 
that in that pastor's sermon, that outside of maybe general references to God, there was really an absence from the gospel being central. He, he, he kind of described it this way. He said it was, it was kind of like a, a moral, therapeutic God. What does that mean? Well, it's the kind of God that's, you know, created and ordered the world. He's, he watches over the human life that he's created. And he wants, God, he wants people that he's created to be good and nice and fair to each other. Kind of do the things that are taught in the scriptures. Kind of things that most world religions would actually probably encourage. And really that the central goal of life is really to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God doesn't really need to be particularly involved in your life unless something really nasty happens. And then you bring him in because then he's really able to, he's able to resolve the problems that you have. And good people tend to go to heaven when they die. In that kind of an environment, there's not a strong call to believe and to repent and to turn to the king of kings who is Lord of all. We are sinners who are underneath the criminal condemnation. And we need a substitute to die on our behalf because it is that bad. We need to repent and believe the gospel. Frankly, it's easy to to gather a crowd in that setting. But that church is not a pillar of the truth. It's a big, wide-open door. They've lost their authority. They're not practicing any sense of discipline in the church because, heaven forbid, people would go out the back door. They've left open the front door. Who cares about the back door in that case? Again, I know of a number of very large churches that don't do this. It's not just because of size. There are churches that I do know of that are of substantial, substantial side who care deeply about the gospel. It's not a, a small church versus a big church thing. It's a gospel thing. It's a gospel thing. And Christ gave two keys to the church, keys of the kingdom, There is a front door of the gospel and there's a process of shepherding the sheep that are in the fold. And sometimes the back door may need to be let open. It's not something that is desired. It's not something that we take delight in. But sometimes it's necessary so that we might have a healthy church. And a healthy church is going to be the kind of church that will reach a community for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, in effort to show good works to our community, we show the love of Christ. We show the gentleness of Christ, the long-suffering of Christ. And true churches will be committed to both of those keys. And I pray that our church will be committed to those keys as we go forward in years ahead. I'm going to close with a word of prayer.